Hello and welcome to the Verdict Podcast. We are here for a fantastic episode with our local MP, Sherilyn. Um, before we start, we just want to say a few things about a few great societies that we love and we think you would love as well. If you have a dream of being the best public speaker in the world, the only place you can go is the Public Speaking Society, run by Yaz and Patricia and Pav. It is absolutely brilliant and it's the perfect place to test your skills and enhance them. Ed's now going to tell you about the fantastic opportunities that Flamang has. Flamang Law Society is a brilliant society. It has mooting, it has negotiating, it has um, debating, but also we're trying to get some social events and um, guest panels set up. So I know we're having talks with Herbert Smith Freehills, our uh, sponsors, at the moment trying to get something sorted with them. And then we're also doing a murder mystery night at some point. Should be really good. And just get everybody should get involved with it. I think great society. Brilliant. Murder mystery night for all those who are studying their actors rares and men's rare at the moment. Um, brilliant. I think we'll get this podcast started. So we're here with our local MP. Uh, Sherilyn, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, thanks guys. I'm Sherilyn McCrory. I'm the new uh, MP for Truro and Falmouth. So I've only been in post since last December. Brilliant. So um, I just want to really start by asking what what is it like being an MP in Cornwall? I mean, do you get the same, you know, intensity as you would up country or is it slightly different? Do the issues differ? You know? Um, I think, uh, well, first of all, it's brilliant to be an MP in Cornwall. I think uh, we were so lucky to be down here in the first place. And despite the fact that I have to travel 11 hours every week to get backwards and forwards, um, it's totally worth it when you come home, actually. So I feel like we're getting the best of both worlds. So I can uh, really get stuck in and do sort of three or four really long days in Westminster. And then as soon as I can, I get back to Cornwall uh, and then soak up the sea air and get around and talk to normal humans that live in Cornwall rather than people that live in Westminster, which is much more up my street yeah <laughs> yeah i think as far as um I, I just, where, where, go on oh sorry I, I was just if you carrying on that but i was just interested how one becomes an mp it's not something i think i've ever really learned about before uh well it's something that i uh it sort of came to me really quickly in some ways, but in other ways, it's something that I'd probably thought about for quite a long time. So a bit about me, I um, grew up in Scarborough in North Yorkshire, uh, went to normal schools, um, did politics A-level, did politics degree in London and um, did a bit of interning. So in those days, I probably was really keen to kind of go down this road, but you know, anyone that is a student in London will quickly learn that you cannot work for, for fresh air. So I left that really quickly and went to work um, for other companies. And sort of left it all behind, really. Um, and I sort of dipped in and out when I was going home to 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 dip in and out of um, volunteering with local parties just to keep my hand in, really. And uh, and that that happened over probably 15, 20 years, I guess. And then um, when I moved to Cornwall, I got married and had a, a young ba- had a baby. And when it was time for me to go back to work, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do for work because you can't suddenly walk into an investment bank or anything like that in Cornwall and suddenly get a job. So uh, we had a new slate of blue MPs in 2015. So I just put my CV out there and so see if anybody wanted anybody. I could only work part time because I was a working mum. And um, Scott Mann actually came back and said, yeah, we think we think you're all right. So I went up and did a couple of years with Scott. Um, and But I actually lived uh, at the time in Steve Double's patch. So um, they 
to, from, to my detriment, persuaded me to stand for Cornwall Council. Uh, so it made sense for me to come and work for Steve because all the casework, there's a big crossover there and you can really, you know, drill down, do some sort of deep diving on the casework if you're, if you're living in the patch as well. And especially if you're a Cornwall councillor, you can really get to the bottom of some of those issues. So I did that. I was very happy doing that. I was very happy working part-time while my little girl was still very little. Uh, and then uh, last year, Sarah Newton stepped down during the general election campaign. <laughs> and uh, somebody said to me, do you fancy it? Well, I, I, I had behind the scenes put my application into CCHQ. For those of you that don't know what that means, it's Conservative Central Office. Um, because going back to the beginning of January, we'd very sadly lost um, our second baby quite late in our pregnancy. So it had been a, sent a bit of a curveball to me and, and knocked me sideways. And I suddenly realised that I wanted to use my brain again. And when, you, when you're going through a grief like that, there's an energy that comes from somewhere inside and it just drives you forward. And until you experience that, you probably won't, mm. re people, people probably wouldn't really understand it. And for me, it was to try and see if I could do it. So I didn't actually think I wanted to be an MP. I just wanted to see if I could get through the process and see if my brain still worked, actually. So fast forward to November last year, and we're in the middle of an election campaign. And somebody said, are you up for it? And I said, look, CCHQ have got my application form. If you think I'm any good, then tell them to write back to me. Anyway, three days later, I was in London doing an, doing an interview. Three days after that, I was being selected by the local party. And five, five weeks after that, I found myself in Westminster. So it was all a massive whirlwind. But, you know, things calmed down uh, in 2020 because we had a global pandemic to deal with. So, you know, it's, it's all fine. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, we want to talk about politics we want to talk about a few issues with you because it, we this is our first you know political kind of podcast um but and i have to say that we're going to approach it from you know a, you know, a political standpoint sure um we you know we've just had a pandemic tory party's been in for conservatives rather how do you think you have dealt with it just in a general kind of how 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 the government has dealt with it or me personally how the government on a yeah, national scale has dealt with it and then zoom in on a local level to your own dealings. Sure. So, uh, I <laughs> so okay, they're going to get quite a bit of kickback on various decisions that they've made. Um, but I think, by and large, they've dealt with it really well. I think it, in the beginning, I don't think anybody would have done anything any differently because whichever party had got in would have been listening to the same advisors. It all happened really quickly in March. We've got to think back and try not to look at it in hindsight. Um, at the time, we saw this thing happening in China and then suddenly it appeared in Europe uh, and it just happened so quickly that they literally had to get together the people in the know and work out how, as a nation, we were going to deal with this. Now, Boris Johnson is a libertarian. So the last thing he wants to do is shut a country down and tell people they can't see their loved ones and go out to work. That's the last thing they want to do. So I think when we look back on this, there are probably lessons to learn about how quickly that happened. But I can see why he left it as long as he did, because you just don't want to do that to your nation. You just don't. Um, so, so I think in the beginning, they've, they've done a really, I think they did a really good job. I think Rishi has absolutely thrown the kitchen sink at trying to keep the economy going and still mm. is doing, by the way. Um, a lot of what yeah. he's doing is very unconservative, but it yeah, has to I, happen. Yeah, I noticed that. I, noticed <laughs> that. I thought it was quite um, very, very, almost as if <clears throat> it was a Labour government and the amount of support he was, he was offering to, and that's not 
say conservatives don't offer support. Um, but the amount of support he was offering to, you know, to furlough schemes, to, yeah. you know, to the, even the education system, the NHS, I was I was really startled by it and I found it, you know, quite enlightening. Um, but yeah, so what about on a local level? Um, just taking yeah. back to, you know, March when, when it was all, you know, kicking off, what, what did you think was going to happen? What policies did you put in place, you know? So I learned very quickly what works well in Cornwall and what doesn't. And luckily for us, um, people in Cornwall are very good at getting on with it. They put they take the politics out of it uh, when we need to and everybody just gets on with their job and everybody worked really, really well together. So I'm talking about uh, bodies like Cornwall Council and the Local Resilience Forum, which for those of you who don't know what that is, it's sort of police emergency services and um, all of uh, uh, and um, heads of parish councils and Cornwall Council, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of, and hospitals. So there's lots of kind of leaders, I guess, in in one sense of the word, who all have to suddenly get together on Zoom, because we were all working out how to use Zoom as well, um, very quickly and very regularly to make sure we knew um, how bad this thing was going to be for Cornwall and what our challenges were locally. So we, um, so I was really impressed with how the hospital um, dealt with it. Um, this is going to sound very technical and boring, but I, it's so, so important to how Cornwall has dealt with it. The infection control at our hospital has been phenomenal. And that is one of the reasons why at the height of the pandemic, um, we didn't uh, lose loads of people. So in other hospitals up country, they were putting people on wards where before they tested them and suddenly they were infecting uh, people who had perhaps might not have had it in the first place. And in Cornwall, we were really strict about not doing that. So, um, so that was a, that was one really brilliant thing that happened here. Um, and also, we and also we had um, for me the the biggest thing that I saw was the fact that parish and town councils and local community groups just totally stepped up without anybody asking. So on that first weekend, Volunteer Cornwall, when they got into their offices on Monday morning, had something like 500 emails of people wanting to offer help, um, just members of the public who wanted to help people who couldn't go out with shielding, you know, trying before we could get the, the, the food parcels in place and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, I've spent my whole year thanking parish and town councils and community groups from the bottom of my heart because I think there would have been a lot of elderly and vulnerable people who would have been left marooned for the first few days and not really knowing what's happened if those people didn't know where those people lived so so that's been brilliant um and I think that has continued all year actually I think I think people have worked really well together there's been a bit of as the year's gone on a bit more towing and toing and froing as far as where where the money's gone and who spent what and who got what help and this should have happened but actually by and large in Cornwall we have fared really well yeah, you 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 did. I mean, my my girlfriend was locked down in Cornwall, and she thought, you know, I was up in Maidenhead in in Berkshire, Theresa May's constituency, and I was having a completely different experience of of COVID. Um, so, just trying a bit put a bit of self reflection on it, if you can answer this as you know as well as you possibly can. What is the one regret as a whole party that you think you know if you could go back and change a decision knowing? all the information you had right now, what would you do? Oh, crikey, that's a really tough one. And that is something that will come out and there will be an inquiry and it will come out. So I'm going to set myself up now uh, and be ca- what we call, what we're calling Captain Hindsight, aren't we? I think, um, you know, I think looking after the vulnerable people, we did really well uh, with the food parcels, etc. I think although Test and Trace has had a real 
um, hard time, what what people have achieved in that has been phenomenal. So it's gone from zero to massive in in a short space of time. And I'm sure there's probably things we could have done better to get that in place uh, more than that. But I'm not really party to the conversations of what went well and what didn't go well at that level. Um, I think, uh, but but it does seem to be that that was the key to to us to us perhaps you know if that was working properly more quickly I think perhaps we could have opened up a bit more quickly but then you know what if you look around other other European countries they're still you know I think we're going to see France go down into another lockdown this week it's it's happening everywhere and I, and and this is why I go back to my original point I don't think that a government any government could have done anything differently because we were just all following what was happening um you know, there's been a few U-turns, which I haven't been particularly impressed with. But again, mm. you've got to take into account what a fluid situation this is. And, you know, I would prefer them not to make knee-jerk decisions and go back on them. I would prefer them to wait a little bit longer and then make the right decision the first time. But, you know, I'm being pedantic mm. now. <laughs> so you think that track and trace was was possibly where, you know, things could have been done slightly mm. different. And, is it? And, yeah, I mean that's that's easy for me though because I'm not I'm not one of the people that set it up. So you yeah, know, right. it's it's you know I, I can say that because I, I again I'm like you. I'm looking at it from the outside. I'm not part of the conversations that happen on the inside. But I know it's gone from zero to you know enormous in a very short space of time. So you know, I think I think they've probably done what they could, but. Could it have done better? I don't know. Yeah. Well, c- coming from someone, I mean, I, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't, I don't care what people think. Um, I didn't vote for Conservative in the, in the last election. Um, I voted Lib Dem, uh, which is unusual for me because I don't really consider myself, you know, one party. I kind of chop and change depending on what policies I think are right. Um, but I, I did say to a few people that were criticising Boris Johnson, I said, well, look, you know, he hasn't got PPE, you know, stashed away that he's not giving out. Exactly. Now, that's not how it works. He hasn't, you know, oh, we saved this for a rainy day. He's literally giving out all the PPE he could have. And this was at a point where they were going into Waitrose and seeing people with PPE, yet NHS yeah. hospitals didn't have PPE. Um, and my father was working on getting PPE for Tony Guy hair salons. And I knew from him that it was a difficult process because certain PPE has to be approved, certain doesn't. But what what confused me slightly was um, kind of the priorities of the government because some people have said to me, and I tend to agree to a certain extent, that the first lockdown was completely pointless. I don't agree fully with that statement, but I can understand why they say it. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the first lockdown because we're seeing a second spike now with more cases than we ever saw, you know, a day in the first lockdown, I think that was 20,000 one day this week, yet we're not locking down. Mm-hmm. Do you want so, to just... Yeah, two, th- two things there. So firstly, going back to your PPE point, there were two routes to get PPE in the beginning. If you were a part of the National Health Service, then that's the government was responsible for getting those. And the criticism came from care homes who didn't have PPE. And mm. the problem was, is that their route to get PPE was through the private sector. They never got it from the government. And suddenly everybody needed it and there wasn't any left. So, um, but when that was hot, that all was all breaking. We had one care home in Truro and Falmouth that approached me with an issue. And actually somebody put me onto them. And the reason that they didn't get their PPE was because the manager of that care home 
uh, was shielding and she'd basically abandoned really young carers to try and sort it out for them. Everybody else in my constituency that I know of uh, was was okay. And I know that Cornwall Council, despite them having to really rattle government, were still churning out PPE to everybody that needed it. So again, we fared pretty well in Cornwall um, mm. on the lockdown. So um, on that, I think we had to lock down at that point. Uh, there was no choice in that. And you've got to remember, if you look at the figures now, we weren't testing people back in the early days. So there could have been an awful lot more people um, who had COVID in those days that weren't being tested. So I have friends who, I've got one friend who had come back from Italy before we locked down. And I think he was something like the 150th person to be diagnosed with COVID in, in the country um, because uh, they were at that point testing people on arrival back into the UK. Um, and that was probably late February, I think, that that happened, or early March even. Um, and because again, it all happened very quickly. I think um, they were so they were testing people right at the beginning, but there wasn't there wasn't this kind of mass testing that we're seeing now. So now anybody can get a test that's displaying symptoms, or they think they you know they've been told to by track and trace. So we are testing something like. Um, 300,000, or there's 300,000, potentially 300,000 people being tested every single day now. So for us to be getting 20,000 positive tests out of that many, we're still, you know, seeing a very small percentage of people being positive. And I think back in March, there were an awful lot of people who had it that weren't tested. And am I right in saying that the deaths have decreased? As in the amount of, so when you're comparing the amount of positive infections that there were in the first lockdown compared to the deaths, that comparison now is a lot yeah. less. Yes, and that's true. So part of that is through um, infection control that I talked about earlier. And also um, intensive care doctors now know a lot more about this virus than they did in March and April, and they're able to um, treat it a lot better. So when uh, the prime minister was on his ventilator, for example, there was literally a 50-50 chance that he wouldn't make that. Um, and We didn't know that. Yeah, so seriously, that's that's what it was. There was a 50-50 chance he was not coming out of that. So we were all quite worried. Um, but now there's a, it's an awful lot better chance for people because of the drugs that they can use. And don't ask me to name them. One begins with D and I cannot remember what. How no, it, it, yeah, <laughs> we won't do that. But I, I had a theory personally yeah. that it was because you know, I think that the second spike is, you know, down to people like myself and Ed, you know, uni students. Um, and is that, you know, younger people getting affected with with less, you know, less chance of dying because they're younger? Or is it purely because of the drugs, the new drugs that they have? I think it's probably a bit of both, actually. Um, but I have to say in Falmouth... Um They've been the, our students. I'm so impressed with our students. Yeah, we, they've been well. doing they've been doing brilliant job actually. Yeah. I think last time yeah. I looked, we had something like 12 households in lockdown uh, out of all of those students. It's been brilliant, and and the relations with the local community, people I talk to in the local community now, uh, are actually vastly improved on what they were this time last year, purely because of how this has all been managed and how people are behaving. So I can only talk to my constituency and I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I think I think, I think think unis have done an awesome job at, at, at managing this in Falmouth, both unis. Um, obviously, I can't speak for a country, but why would why would we not have been getting positive tests in, in that age group back in March and April? Of course we were. It's just we weren't testing people in, the, in those mm. days. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know if Ed's had one yet, but I had an interview with the, the NHS or, you know, an emanation of the NHS about track and trace testing um, as a uni student. And they, they talked to me a lot 
about, you know, if you had symptoms of COVID, would you get a test? Um, and I know, pers- not necessarily personally, but I know people are quite sceptical about the testing system because there is this issue of, okay, I've got a slight cough, but at the same time, I went in the sea today and I came out and you know, I was coughing after that. Could it be that? I haven't got a temperature, but I've lost taste in my mouth. If I go to get a test, they're going to put me and my household in lockdown until that test comes back and it may come back ne- negative and I've missed all this uni work. What, what do you say to something like that? Well, I would say how much uni work are you going to miss? Because I had to go through exactly that a couple of weeks ago. I, mm. I had a sore throat in Westminster. I came back at the end of the week. I think we'd even gone out for tea and it was still only a sore throat. Sore throat is not one of the symptoms. And um, by the time I got home, because it would have been an early tea because my daughter's six, by the time I got home and I was starting to get ready to go to bed at like 10 o'clock, I was coughing and I was like, "Mm, ah, okay. Mm. Um, And it was coughing. I was awake most of the night coughing. So I booked a test and I was able to get a test at 10.30 the next morning. Um, Had that and they said, oh, it'll be 48 hours. And I was like, okay, hoping it would come, come earlier than that. Um, but it wasn't forthcoming by Sunday night. It still hadn't arrived back. So I had to keep my daughter off school. My husband couldn't work that. And I had, I had to talk to the whips and everything and say, I can't come back to Westminster. Um, but actually I got my test result Monday evening uh, and it was negative. So yeah. I was, everybody was able to go back to their normal lives. You know, we only lost a day really. All right. It was the weekend, but we only would have lost like 48, 72 hours. Um, yeah. yeah. There have been situations down yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, where we've been waiting for, you know, I know the few people have been waiting for a week. Is that recent? uh, Three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Ah, interesting. See, uh, I've had a a different experience because personally, this household that I'm in at the moment had a little bit of a scare to do with some symptoms while my housemates and everything. And we, um, he ordered a test on Monday. He took it at 10 o'clock and he got his results back at six o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. So it was less than 24 hours. We knew yeah. that we could go outside. We, we obviously isolated for the period that the test was taken. Um, but I, I found it to be actually really effective. And it, the ambulance sort of dropped the box off. I couldn't see out my window. And he sort of went back, came back 10 minutes later, picked it up in full PPE gear, and then just simple email, you're negative. I, I found it to be a really effective system. Yeah, that's great. And, I, and with mine, I got a, a, a negative test back and I, it came in by text and email, I think. And I went to go onto my app, my NHS yeah. app, to go and put it in and it immediately put it on for me. I didn't have to do anything. It was just done. So I'm like, oh, OK, how did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. I think definitely the answer to this, though, is speed. Because I know myself as a uni student, if I've got a persistent cough, and I know I can get a test back in 28, 24 to 48 hours, mm. I'm going to do that test because I could be yeah. saving lives. You know what I mean? Definitely, and, absolutely. And it's going to be as least convenient, inconvenient for me. Well, I think I think they want to go even better than that, don't they? I think the next sort of generation of tests that's coming very soon is going to be one that we can get a result back in like 15, 20 minutes or something. And that is going to be the key yeah. to be... If we can't get a vaccine you know, soon, yeah. then, then, the, then this kind of testing will be the next best thing we can get. So potentially, all right, you know, potentially we can get theatres and festivals back on because everybody can have a test before they go in. Uh, you know, is that that? Sort of, and suddenly you start to open up the economy properly because mm. we can test everybody. Yeah, definitely. Um, just just because we know, you know, time time times of the essence here. Um, I think we'll do it. We'll do it. Ed, have you got a question uh, from from the from the audience just to spice things up? Ask the most yeah. controversial question. Um, <laughs> Great. 
Well, yeah, we, 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 yeah, we get quite a lot of questions in from our Instagram and um, just sort of looking through them. A few of them follow along a similar route. Obviously, recently, for those viewing, we've had a big parliamentary debate about whether or not there should be free school meals for children throughout the holidays. And one of them, uh, one of the questions is asked, uh, were you in support of the government's decision to uh, not provide free school meals during holidays? And if so, why? Okay, so I'm going to explain this so everybody gets what actually happened in Parliament that day, because it wasn't, it's not a bill, it's not law, it's what they call an opposition motion. Um, so the opposition get opposition day debates uh, and they can choose anything. So that that opposition day debate was supposed to be about social care and it was changed almost at the last minute. I think probably it was the night before. And that's fine. People are allowed to do that. Parties are allowed to do that. And it was changed to free school meals. <clears throat> and the debate took place on the Wednesday. And what the Labour Party were asking was that we would um, extend the free school meal vouchers, which had been put on when we went into lockdown, um, over the half-term holiday. So they were asking us to do that two days before half-term started. Now, when we set that up in March, the Labour Party were also complaining that the system didn't work properly, fast enough, quick enough, doing this, doing that. So, so what we did and what the government generally does is vote against opposition day motions. We did amend it and the amendment um, talked about the money that had been put in for mm. this exact purpose. So I can tell you in Cornwall that Cornwall has had, uh, well, last week it got an extra £6.3 million, but previous to that it had um, uh, money, which I think they got in August, which had been announced in July, for helping vulnerable families. <laughs> and that was supposed to be used within a 12-week period, which ends at the end of this week. So, so the idea was is that local councils were supposed to already be providing this service. Now, I get that the comms has been really bad and actually um, I think we could have done a, a better job of telling people what was supposed to have happened. But two things really. First, um, first of all, nobody wants to see children going hungry at all, actually. Free school meals are only some of the children that need help during school holidays. So we, we did the U-turn, if you like, in summer holidays because schools hadn't been open and some of those children had not seen their school since March. So they re that we really needed to carry that on. And I was one of the ones that was very uncomfortable about taking that away in summer holidays. And I spoke to my whip about it. But this time schools have been back. Those, those structures and those support groups are in place and local councils have had the money and charities and everybody has had the money to help those families. And also if you're a preschooler or um, somebody whose family has just lost their job, you won't be entitled to free school meals as per se, as per the opposition day motion. So the idea of the councils having the money to help vulnerable families, it means that they know their local communities. They can offer them anything from white goods to, I don't know, anything that that family is struggling with that really, really needs it. So that was the whole point. But it's been uh, a horrible few days because now I'm being told locally that I want children to starve. And actually, I think you and I both know that that really isn't the case. Well, I'm sure you don't you don't want to see children starving. I have no doubt about that. Um, but so what I'm understanding of what you just said is your objective, you know, was kind of in line with, you know, the Labour Party of getting helping vulnerable children. It's just the money was coming from a different direction and being placed in a different yeah, area. Correct. But it was all you, you all had the similar objective. It was just a matter of miscommunication. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely correct. Right. And what, what I hope we can do uh, between now and Christmas is um, come up with a clearer package so that, because we will need to re refund this ready for yeah. Christmas. Um, so hopefully we can come up with a clearer um, package so that people don't think that that is what we're trying to do. <laughs> so we've got 13 minutes left. I've got two more questions. Ed, I'm sure, has some questions. So what I'll do is I'll ask one question, Ed will ask one, and then if we've got time, we'll do our last two. Um, my question was firstly about Brexit. Now, I don't want to go into detail. I don't want to know whether you're a Brexiteer or not, because that's past. I'm not interested. What I want to know is, you know, what is the plan? You know, what what are you going to do for Cornwall with regards to Brexit? What do you hope Brexit will achieve in a positive light? And what do you think the knock-on effects will be in one minute? <laughs> <laughs> oh, crikey. Okay, so uh, I... So we're coming towards the end of the transition period, so we have to wait to see how those negotiations go. I think the government has done a better job in recent weeks and months of preparing businesses for a potential no deal. I think the information is now out there and people can prepare one way or the other. They will have to, uh, Businesses will have to prepare that, be prepared regardless of if it's no deal or if there is a Canada-style deal, which is what, what the government is asking for. Um, my main objective for when we leave the European Union, there are two big things that I want to see happen in Cornwall. The first thing is the Shared Prosperity Fund. So Cornwall has um, historically had an awful lot of European funding, which has gone to job creation. Um, and there are a lot of projects which are run really well and are really doing a good, good job. And there are some projects which, frankly, aren't viable, I think. So I want us to have a really good look at the projects that are working really well in Cornwall and I want the Shared Prosperity Fund to be able to fund those and also I want the Shared Prosperity Fund to be able to fund other things that we haven't even thought of yet because the the criteria for that funding from the European Union was actually quite strict whereas now that we're in charge of that we get a better say um, as, a, as a nation as to ha what we want to happen with that money. So the money will be there. It's about how we spend it. So that's that's a really important um, objective of mine. Um, and then the big one of the big problems I see coming down the line is for our farmers um, and we need some seasonal workers. Uh, so I'm having conversations with the Home Office at the moment about that because that is one massive concern about that, 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 that our farmers have is that we won't have anyone to pick our daffodils and cauliflowers. And, uh, you know, time is ticking and we need that sorted as quickly as we can. So so those are the, those are the two main conversations I'm having there. Actually, thirdly, is the fishing. So my husband's a under 10 metre hook and line fisherman. So um, we want to make sure that uh, we get a fair deal for our fisheries. I think there's still some nervousness around that that that. That, that might be compromised, but um, we passed the fisheries bill in Parliament uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we we now, as soon as the transition period ends, we now are in control of our own waters and we are the ones that have to then uh, manage, and that's the key word, manage our waters so we get better conservation, we get better um, uh, quotas for you know, whoever's fishing in our waters and we can, our industry then now has a real say in how that is managed. And the fishing mm. industry doesn't all talk with one voice, by the way. So it is going to be, there yeah, are going to be tough conversations I'm, to have. I'm sure. Um, Ed, that was, that was great, by the way. Really good. Ed, questions? Uh, there's one question that stood out to me when I was looking through and it. I'm not sure it's something I necessarily agree with myself, but the question sort of centred around on somebody asking why there's maybe a perceived lack of, uh, I'd say right-wing, but conservative support in younger generations. Generally, mm -hmm. I know Falmouth University and Exeter University down here 
I've got a lot of friends that I know for a fact are Labour supporters and it's a large base down here. Do you think that maybe the politics from the Conservative Party aren't um, necessarily attractive to younger people or is it maybe something to do with uh, social wanna, media wanna, getting people involved? Do you want to tell um, Cheryl in the comment that Cameron said as well? I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the comment he used. I remember that one. So he said, he said that everyone's everyone's labor when they're younger and then they turn into conservatives when they have to start paying taxes um well i i think there might be some true who knows. but i uh, i had quite a lot of students come out and help me despite uh public um perception i did have a lot of students come out and help me during the um general election campaign actually there was quite a crew of us and it was really nice to see i have to say and i during the election campaign i went to visit the conservatives at falmouth uni and there was like a massive labor rally going on upstairs and we had you know we had a gang in in our in our room and um there were some people in that room who, and I, I'd go around and say, look, why are you conservative? It's really unusual. What are you doing? And people would come back to me and tell me about how hard their parents had worked and what, a, you know, they'd been working class and everybody's worked really hard. And, you know, they're so proud that they're here and they just want to try hard. And, all, and you know, there were some really good, wholesome stories coming out of that. And, um, and then everybody was feeling really good about themselves. And then somebody said, but now I've got to go back to my halls of residence and get absolutely vilified for voting conservative. I don't even tell people. Yeah. And how awful is that? That there's, there's the people around can't just disagree <laughs> with somebody about politics and not call them names and not make them feel like they're some kind of social outcast. So there's a bit of that going on, I have to say. Um, I think we could probably do better with policies. But actually, I think um, for me, uh, I'm not even going to try and play politics with people of any age for me I'm now in this position and I just want to do a really good job locally and be a really good local MP so if people that hate the conservatives and they're already starting to do it by the way if people that hate the conservatives can go oh, I never vote for Boris Johnson but she's all right then I know I'm doing okay <laughs> yeah I, I think that's uh, I kind of agree and, dis and disagree with that at the same time the vilification of the conservatives you know is is something everyone's guilty of but at the same time everyone's guilty of the vilification of, of the Labour Party it's always going to be that way uh, I think that I disagree I can I jump in there it doesn't yeah, always sure. have to be that way actually I think that and I, I'm going to go back to the Brexit vote because the Brexit vote in 2016 everybody just decided whether they wanted to remain part of the European Union or not and somehow over the last four years it's gone um, out like this so it's become extremely polarized and now every single decision that politicians make is now a binary choice and you're either with them or against them and I hate it I hate that actually it's a multitude of gray areas and everybody should be allowed to disagree and have agree on some things and other things and back in my grandma's day nobody told each other how they voted by the way they just went and did it and somehow and I'm you know it's probably media social media who knows social but media. we've all become and I don't like it and I'm not going to accept it and I think we should as a group and if you guys and your generation did it we would go a long way just you know take the sting out of it actually and just listen and understand somebody else's point of view I think that's so important I can understand where you're coming yeah, from just on I see, on that note, I was going to say, I, I personally, I don't care what anybody votes. I think it's it's not a trivial thing, but it's a personal thing. It's something that you decide based on the information you choose. And mm. I, I've always said that I don't care what you vote. If you argue with me and you get into a heated argument, I will argue back because I'm not yeah. going to stand there and let you sort of like debase my views. 
Yeah, Ed and I, Ed and I have had many, many uh, brilliant debates about public schools, state schools, private schools, and, and it's and it's all been in, in perfectly, you know, good taste, which I love. And what I was going to say earlier about the vilification of each party is, I am fine with you know someone at a pub going, oh, this guy's a Tory, oh, this guy's Labour, whatever. But what I am not fine with is the suppression of debate, and right. I feel that. Right now, okay, if we've got these, you know, you were talking about the polarisation of Brexit, for example. I'm not going to get into Brexit because it's an issue that I feel too strong about and I've got to stay on the straight and narrow here. But I think if we can have a situation where people can feel free to debate Labour versus Conservative, Lib Dem versus Conservative in a manner that is uh, more... You're kind of well informed rather than just are oh, you like Boris Johnson because of this, your dad's rich because of that. I yeah. think that that's more positive, and I think we shouldn't discourage at any point, you know, people having different views. Correct, uh, absolutely agree. Make clear, yeah, absolutely um, agree. Um, can I just make one more point very quickly? So, on so if you listen to like Radio Five Live, for example, they actually talk about politics in the same way they they they, they commentate on politics in the same way they commentate on football matches, and I don't think that's helpful. Makes everything tribal. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think that um, you know, there's you can really pick out the idiot in the room when you start talking about politics, because if the point they make is so vague and so uninformed, I remember I was at school once and um, I this kid I knew was talking about how much he loved Brexit, how much this was so great for our country and everything. And I said, who's Michelle Barnier? And he <laughs> couldn't give me an answer. Okay. And I said, so before you start talking about these things, maybe do a bit of research. And if you want to come back with a, a you know, a well-informed debate, we can all sit and listen. Um, anyway, I just want to ask one more question. Um, uh, we're all, you know, most people listening here will be law students uh what do you think about you know proportional representation in parliament uh well i'm speaking to a liberal democrat so i know what your view was probably going to be I, and i will I'm happily disagree with that <laughs> no I, I i am a big advocate of first past the post it's easy it gives clear governments generally all we have got clear government at the moment although the last few elections haven't given clear government but generally speaking it gives clear government i was a politics student over 20 years ago and we've been having this debate ever since um and uh yeah i'll i'll i'm i know it's not popular in in young in the youngsters views but i will advocate first past the post all the way one <laughs> one more thing if you could create your own party what would it be called and what would its main objective be yeah uh, we've actually probably touched on what i think the main objective would be but it would i don't know what it would be called but i want to have the word compassion in there somewhere i think we've got to all start caring about each other again um, okay. you know and and, yeah. and you know if we can use that as a starting point we can't go too far wrong okay thank you very much Sherilyn. you've been a fantastic guest i yeah, hope that everything goes well um in your future political it's a pleasure career. it's a pleasure cheers guys Okay, yeah, Ed, that was a great guess, wasn't it? What, what do you think about um, everything that's said? Uh, definitely. Uh, from an apolitical point of view, it's very well to run down of how the Conservative Party is uh, functioning at the moment. Obviously, with COVID, it's not the most popular opinion to have to support the Conservatives because it's, again, well, like, um, like Sharon said, it's a very polarised viewpoint. I think politics has moved towards this. You're either on the left or you're on the right. It's not a scale anymore. And even then, it's not necessarily a scale. It's a plane. You exist in multiple places at once. But um, 
yeah, I, I just found it really interesting her views on Brexit, on uh, COVID, then also on the free school meal thing. Just recent things that are always in the news, but you don't necessarily get face to face personal talk about. I, I didn't like I about you. what she said about the polarisation of, of Brexit because um, being as apolitical as, as possible here, I think that it is not possible to ask a country a question like that. Um, you know, it's just not possible and to, to get an answer that everyone's going to like. Um, and I think the reason why the question was so simple, the reason it was yes or no, is the reason that there's been polarisation. So, I, you know, because it's clear two-sided argument, um, you know, uh, it's pretty obvious, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, we'll sign off there and we just got to say a few things about, you know, all the societies that we, we like to sponsor. So if you've got a dream, if you want to fight on the beaches, you know, uh, then you have to be a public speaker. Uh, that's that's all I've got to say about that. You've got to join the Public Speaking Society because it is the way that you can get over your fears of you know speaking to thousands of people and also just improve your communication skills in general. If you're on a date with you know a lovely you know, a lovely lady, being in the Public Speaking Society is going to mean you know you're going to have no nerves when uh, talking to a lovely lady or yeah, guy sure. or yeah. whatever your preference is. Ed, do you want to tell us about Flamank? At the Flamanc Law Society, we're doing our best as VP. I know we're putting in a lot of effort trying to make it the best society for you. Socials, panels, debating, mooting, negotiating, all the stuff we've meant for. But I think just hammering home the point that it's open to everybody, even if you don't study law, even if you don't study business or law-adjacent topics, it's just if you're interested in the field of law, the, a future career per se, it's something that anybody can engage with. And it's just... It gives people a lot of information about a field that affects quite, well, most of us. It's signing contracts, all that stuff. I think it's something that would be very good to get involved with, and we'd love to have you. It's only £10 membership, I think. Yeah, £10 membership. So feel free to join. It's great, great opportunity. This has been the Verdict Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a fantastic episode. I hope you're enjoying your day and enjoying yourselves and enjoying your evening. Wherever you may be listening, I'd just like to say goodbye from me, Linus Leo Lampy, the Triple L, and Ed Dempsey likes to say... Bye from me. Yeah. Brilliant. Goodbye from me, Ed Dempsey. See you next time.